0: Bible is at Genesis chapter 39. Uh, if you've got the Pew Bible in front of you, we'll be on page 34. Uh, and as always, if you have any questions as we go through, you can go to slido.com and type in RevCDA in the prompt and uh, ask a question, and we'll take a look at that at the end this morning. Let me uh, let me pray for us. <sighs> God, thank you for today. Thank you for uh, just an opportunity to be in this place together as your people. Um, For many of us, this is just our Sunday morning routine. uh, And there's some really good things about it being a routine, but there's also a tendency to uh, just take it for granted that it's just something that we do but God you you have given us this gathering this opportunity to come together to sit under your word to sing songs to you and to one another to to stir us up and encourage us, you've placed that as a routine for your people because it forms us, because it shapes us, because it changes us. And, and maybe it doesn't feel like it changes us week by week, but over the course of years and decades, it, it shapes our character, it molds our hearts, it, um, we will look back and see your Holy Spirit having transformed us into someone who looks more like Jesus than we used to uh, and this is part of that process, and, and we just thank you for that. Uh, God, I, I pray for um, the uh, the Phillips family this morning. I pray for Stella and just her stay in the hospital and the health scare and uh, just for the doctors and nurses and everybody that's caring for her right now, God, that you would just be with her and help her in her recovery. God, I pray just against the fear and the um, just the worry that sparks up in a family when someone is is suffering. God, I pray that you would provide comfort and peace. And God, as we approach this uh, this holiday on the fourth, we we are people who are primarily citizens of a different kingdom. We we live in the greatest empire the world has ever known, and and we celebrate our uh, country on the fourth. And uh, I just pray that we would both be grateful for. The place that we're in, the freedom that we have, the um, prosperity that you have allowed the United States to bring to the world, Uh, but that we would also remember that this nation is not the one that we swear our ultimate allegiance to, that it's the kingdom of God and and that we are primarily your people and that we would celebrate rightly uh, as we Uh, exercise appropriate patriotism and and yet still uh, bow our knee to Jesus, our King. God, I pray for your word this morning, that we would hear it, that we would apply it to our hearts and to our lives, that we would be challenged by it, that we would be encouraged in it. God, I pray that you just do a work. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week I was at the uh, Salvation Army Croc Center and I was teaching a film camp to a bunch of junior high and high school kids. We take a week every summer and we start from nothing and we develop a script and we cast it and we shoot it and we edit it and on Friday afternoon we premiere a short film. Uh, It's a really fun process. It's about 15 kids and um, most of them are interested in filmmaking. They all have YouTube pages usually, uh, but they've never really done anything remotely serious. And, and so they're always a little confused when you set up the lights and, and everything and, and, and they, you point the camera in this direction and they go like, oh, aren't we gonna see all these things in the shot? And then they, they go and they look through the camera and they realize that, that all of that equipment that you've set up is just barely out of frame. It's just, you just barely can't see it. And then they began to think about the movies they watch and all of the different effects and looks and things, and then they realize, oh, all of that stuff is just outside their view. As we work through this story, we continue the Joseph story, there are things that are just outside the frame of this story that are really important to understand that really shape what's going on here. We've been talking for the last couple of weeks about God's sovereignty, how he is he's shaping the events of this story for a purpose. He is intending to save this family from starvation. And in this episode where we zoom back into Joseph after being sold into slavery, we're going to see some things play out in his life, but there's a little bit more going on if we zoom out a little bit. And, and so I want to do that in a couple different areas The first thing we read in verse 1, Now Joseph had been taken to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man, serving in the household of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made everything he did successful, Joseph found favor with his master and became his personal attendant. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and placed all that he owned under his authority. From the time that he put him in the charge of the household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house because of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was on all that he owned in his house and in his fields." So there's something bigger going on here because what we can assume, I think, from the situation is that Joseph didn't show up at Potiphar's house and say, hey, I'm a servant of this God that you've never heard of named Yahweh and you don't believe in, and he's great, so you should put me in charge. Like, that's probably not how that went down. The kid that just got sold into slavery. Are are you really interested in trusting in his God? So Potiphar could not have just started this relationship with Joseph thinking like, oh yeah, I'm a believer in Yahweh, I'm gonna promote Joseph. This is not what happened. What happened was Joseph is honest and hardworking and probably good at math, which we'll see later in the story. And he's just really talented in some ways that are important to Potiphar. We see that he's promoted three times. The first thing he's, he's promoted to is being an indoor worker. As a young man, he probably would have been hired to work outside doing manual labor, but he is invited into the house. Secondly, he's promoted to be Potiphar's personal attendant, the closest servant to him, and third, He's promoted to the head of the household over everything in the house. Why? Because he's really good at his job. Potiphar doesn't become a convert to Joseph's faith. He doesn't say, I should probably give this kid a raise. That's what Yahweh would want. He recognizes that this young man is talented and an asset to his estate, and he promotes him because of it. And at the same time, the narrator tells us five different times that the reason for Joseph's success is that the Lord was with him. That God was causing his life to prosper and creating blessing in the house of Potiphar Potiphar because of him. Throughout this story, Joseph becomes the mediator of God's blessing wherever he goes. And I think the reason for that is, Part of the reason for that is that there are certain things about the way the universe works. There are certain principles that God has laid down that are corresponding to his character that we can tap into. Proverbs 22 says, do you see a person skilled in his work? He will stand in the presence of kings. He will not stand in the presence of the unknown. I wonder if Solomon was thinking about Joseph when he wrote that. Proverbs tells us over and over and over again, work hard, learn skills, make responsible choices, take ownership on behalf of your employer and people will notice. Proverbs 13, four says the slacker craves yet has nothing, but the diligent is fully satisfied. And many of us are in a place in our lives where maybe we're younger, we've got young families, we're, we're looking for ways to earn more money, have more responsibility, career advancement, And there's a principle here that, that would say, like, work hard. Do your best. Give everything that you can to be ethical, to be responsible, to be diligent. The book of Proverbs aren't a list of promises, but they are a guide to the way that the world usually works, the way God has designed it to work. Why? Because God is the ultimate worker. He is the ultimate responsible party, the diligent creator And he cares more about his work and gives more to it than anyone. So his counsel is to order your life in such a way that you are in line with his character and you will see results. But here's where we twist this. In our cultural moment right now, a lot of us would would get on uh, YouTube and social media and subscribe to certain influencers that talk about hustle culture and making money and being successful at all costs. Instead of a work ethic that uh, flows out of our relationship with God, our culture has replaced God with ourself. I'm the talented one. I put in the time. I work the hours. I developed the skills. Jackson said it when we were singing that the, the breath in our lungs comes from the Lord, and yet we forget that. We forget this part of the equation, the thing that the narrator keys us into in this story that the Lord was with him. Any success that you have, any favor you've been given, is ultimately God's doing. And remember, at the end of this chapter, Joseph gets thrown into prison, and the Lord is with him. So we can't rightly judge our path based on our success or our prosperity, but we can do our part to be faithful and work hard as an act of worship and trust God for all the details. Colossians 3 says, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. Joseph is a diligent, hardworking individual because he is expressing the character of God. And Potiphar recognizes it. And yet at the same time, the Lord is with him, directing his steps, granting him success. But then something goes wrong. He left all that he owned under Joseph's authority. He did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome after some time his master's wife looked longingly at Joseph and said, sleep with me, but he refused. Look, he said to his master's wife, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in his house and he has put all that he owns under my authority. No one in this house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. So how could I do this immense evil and how could I sin against God? The narrator says that Joseph is well-built and handsome. These are the same Hebrew words that are used to describe his mother, Rachel, uh, way back when Jacob meets Rachel at the well. The English translation here makes them a little more masculine-sounding than beautiful, which is what Rachel is called, but it's the same description. Makes sense. Joseph looks like his mother. And after some amount of time in Potiphar's home, his wife begins to proposition him for sex. And Joseph has a decision to make. Accepting this woman's offer would probably lead to more favor in the home. He would become her favorite servant. And as long as Potiphar didn't find out about it, it could work out for his favor. When we think about Sex, our culture, again, speaks only one value. Our value is consent, right? Like that's, that's the word of the day when it comes to sexuality. That is the only metric that we have to judge whether or not a sexual experience is a good one. If two or more people want to engage in a sexual activity, as long as everybody's okay with that, that should be fine. It's because we have imagined that our sexual practices are simply physical and they bear no weight outside of our own pleasure. But Joseph understands that this request for sex goes just beyond physical pleasure, and he sees three problems with it. The first one is he said it's an abuse of trust. Joseph sees a problem with this because of his relationship to his master. And this is probably the most easy for us to grab a hold of. We still have some idea that adultery, a breach of wedding vows, is an abuse of trust. We are, as a society, growing more and more willing to uh, ignore wedding vows, but we still see the rationale that says one party in a marriage is not in favor of adding a, second, a third person and we see that as an abuse of trust. And Joseph says, Potiphar has made assumptions about his character. He can be trusted. He's been given all of this responsibility. And he sees it as a great sin to break the trust that he's been given with his master. But then he says, it would be an offense to her husband, to Potiphar himself. Joseph sees a problem with this because, Potiphar's, because of Potiphar's wife, because Potiphar's wife's relationship to Potiphar himself. See, in God's economy, sexual expression is meant only for a man and a woman bound together in a lifelong covenant with one another. And for, in Joseph's mind, to engage in sex with Potiphar's wife breaks that covenant. It's not just an issue of his trust in his relationship with Potiphar, it's an an issue of damaging the union between this man and his wife. Marriage is a covenant, that's what we understand it as Christians, and, and one function of sex is as an expression of covenant renewal. Tim Keller says it like this, indeed sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to give you, for you to give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less. So according to the Bible, a covenant is necessary for sex. It creates a place of security for vulnerability and intimacy. But though a marriage covenant is necessary for sex, sex is also necessary necessary for the maintenance of the covenant. Joseph recognizes that he is not part of that covenant, and he has no right to abuse it for his own pleasure, even if Potiphar's wife is willing to do so. And this idea of covenant is really the centerpiece for our understanding as Christians of all kinds of sexual sin. Sex outside of covenant is dangerous. It is inherently unsafe, primarily for women, but also for men. And if you are engaging in sex with someone who is not your spouse, you need to confess and repent of that sin and turn away from it. Even if you don't have a spouse. Kind of a classic illustration about this is, is the, the use of fire. Fire is a very powerful substance. And when it's in the fireplace, when it's in the context it belongs, it warms a home, it can cook food, it's a gift. It's a gift. But if it's on your couch, it's a problem. It can burn down your home. It requires an appropriate context. And I don't know, honestly, anyone that, has been able to, that I've been able to really get to know to where we can have this kind of conversation that hasn't been burnt by sexual sin. Either sin done by them or done to them. We live in this culture where we're just, it's, it's thrown out at us and it's rampant. And it seems like it hits everyone in some way or another. It's because sex is a powerful part of the marriage covenant. And when we access it outside of that safety, we will be hurt. So Joseph isn't, isn't going to do it. But the third reason that he says he's not going to do it is that ultimately it's a sin against God, right? All sin ultimately goes against God. Psalm 51, David says, for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me against you and you alone. I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence, you are blameless when you judge. David had committed a terrible sin. He had, uh, lusted after a woman that wasn't his wife, he coaxed her to his home and had sex with her, got her pregnant, and to hide up, hide cover up the pregnancy, he had her husband killed. That's that's pretty wicked. And he recognizes in the light of all of the damage that he had done to those people, and he has done real damage to those people, all of that filters back up to God because God has created us to be a certain kind of creature and when we refuse to live the way he calls us to live we have missed the mark that's what sin means the word uh, is missed the mark we've sinned, we've rebelled There's there's a standard for how we're called to live and we don't do it and this is a sin against God one of the reasons that sexual sin is a sin against God is because sex is a profound picture of God's love All throughout the scriptures, God presents himself as a groom and his people as a bride. The kind of trust and care and vulnerability that is pictured in marriage and in sex is a picture of the way God himself gives himself to his people. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church. Since we are members of his body, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. I love how Paul says that. He's kind of like, you know, this is kind of crazy, but marriage and sex teaches us about the way that Christ loves his people. When we abuse our sexuality, when we view pornography or lust after other people in our hearts or engage in sexual relationships outside of a marriage covenant, and it's one man, one woman parameters, we are misrepresenting what God is like. Possibly to those in the world, but absolutely to ourselves, right? When we, when we misuse sex, we distort our view of God, Maybe not on the surface, maybe not immediately, but that is what ultimately happens. We do not understand God rightly because we abuse this picture. And so Joseph refuses. He refuses to sin in these ways for these reasons. He's not going to do it. But then there's something else going on here, something a little bit outside the frame, and that's that that this is... This is more than just a story about temptation. Starting in verse 10. Although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. Now, one day he went to his house to go to his work and none of the household servants were there. She grabbed him by his garment and said, sleep with me, but leaving his garment in her hand, he escaped and ran outside. When she saw that he had left his garment with her and run outside, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, my husband brought a Hebrew man to make fools of us. He came to me so he could sleep with me, and I screamed as loud as I could. When he heard me screaming for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. she put Joseph's garment beside her until his master came home, and she told him the same story. The Hebrew slave you brought to us came to make a fool of me, and when I screamed for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. Again, we've talked about the the echoes of storytelling throughout this book, right? We, we last, um, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Judah deceived Jacob with Joseph's garment, just like Jacob deceived his father with Esau's garment. And in this story, we see Potiphar's wife deceiving Potiphar and the rest of the servants with Joseph's garment she, when she can't have what she wants, when he flees from the scene, she twists her story to punish him. And this story is often told as an example of running away from temptation, right? That's what Joseph does. He literally runs away from the temptation. And that's true, more or less, but I wonder, like, who's really struggling with temptation in this story? it's Potiphar's wife, it's not Joseph. Joseph's fine, he's totally content to do his job and live a righteous life, and it's this woman who is constantly propositioning him, constantly flirting with him. And we might assume that Joseph, as an 18 or 19 year old young man, would just jump at the chance to take this woman up on her offer, And that he is working with all of his might not to succumb to her advances. But the Bible doesn't say that. He seems perfectly content to just say no. And that she's the one that's wrestling with this illicit desire. And I think this is really interesting and helpful as we begin to understand what temptation is. We tend to assume that a greatly tempted person is the one that desires to sin most deeply. But I think that's backwards. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. This is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Lewis points out that Jesus is the one person most acquainted with temptation, not because he succumbed to it, but because he resisted it. And Jesus is the ultimate model of Joseph's behavior here. Hebrews Hebrews four says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. And we get this wrong because we think, oh, Jesus is God, so his, his temptations don't count. But the way Lewis says it, they actually count the most. They hit him the hardest. Think of it this way, if you, have, if you have three buildings in a hurricane, you've got a, a grass hut and a regular house and a concrete bunker, and the hut is just completely destroyed by the hurricane, obviously it's not very strong. If the house loses some shingles and the window breaks, it's stronger, but it has been harmed by the hurricane, and then you have the concrete bunker that afterwards shows no signs of wear at all, you wouldn't say that the house has experienced the hurricane more greatly because it's been damaged by it. You would praise the bunker for being fine in the face of the worst that nature could throw at it. Jesus never succumbed to temptation. Jesus was tempted constantly and always remained holy and in right relationship with God. And Joseph is showing us, I think, that while he is being obviously tempted to do wrong, he has a depth of character that allows him to say, no, I'm not gonna do that. And it's for all of us, the grace of God inside of us that gives us the power to overcome that temptation and to stand up against it. And I think this is really important in this issue because it is popular. It's been taught in the church for a couple generations now that there is something about men, especially young men, that is part of who we are. And it's this animalistic lust that lives inside us that we always have to battle against and it never goes away. I'm sure many of you have been taught that. You've probably read books about it. We're just perpetually weak And this affects our reading of the story. Like how could Joseph not be salivating at the possibility to act on this woman's offer? Obviously, he's just torn up inside about it. But I don't think that's actually true. I don't think we are people that are bound by this idea of lust that lives inside of us. Maybe naturally, but if you're a Christian here this morning, if you've been given the power of God's Holy Spirit to live inside of you, that can't possibly be true for you. And this really warps a lot of the things we think about the world. We, we begin to think that like men are just weak and unable to control their lusts, and so we need to have women do it for them. We teach girls that it's up to you to keep your your, friend, your guy friends from stumbling, we put we give wives the responsibility to prevent their husbands from cheating because men just can't help themselves. In this particular sin, we see that that there's this beast that's buried inside of us that's just going to somehow boil over if we don't keep it in check. But we don't think about other sins that way, right? If if you're just if you're just a gossip. You don't go like, well, I just, that's just that thing that lives inside of me, and I have, to, I have to rely on other people to make sure that I don't gossip. No, stop gossiping. By the power of God's spirit in you, be transformed. What if when we think about lust, instead of thinking about just this thing that we can't get rid of, what if we think of it as a sinful tendency that we are meant to outgrow? Many of you have toddlers, and they throw tantrums. I know this because they do it here. (laughs) And I I stand back and I go, I'm glad I don't have toddlers anymore. But when your three-year-old hears that it is time to go and they just lose their mind and start screaming, you don't go like, yeah, that's just, they're going to have to struggle with that for the rest of their lives. Like, no, they're going to have to grow up. You have to stop doing that. And if you're 25 and you lose your mind when someone tells you you're going to get your way, there's a problem there. And again, influential people in the church have taught us, particularly men, for several generations, that lust is just this irredeemable part of who we are and we're never going to get over it. And that's just not Scripture's vision of what it means to be a Christian. Lust isn't meant to be this ball around your your leg that you're not going to get rid of. It's meant to be overcome and put behind us just like throwing tantrums as toddlers. Job 31.1, Job is arguing with his friends about whether he's committed sin or not. And one of his arguments is he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I look at a young woman? This is one of Job's arguments for his innocence. He says, I don't look lustfully at other women. I just stopped doing that. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. He doesn't say flee from passions. He says from youthful passions. When you were young, when you were little, when you were undisciplined, you had these passions and you need to knock it off. You need to move on from that. We're meant to mature past these things. This is God's intention for us. Men, women, everyone in here. The gospel has the power to do that. And sometimes I don't think we believe that. We think that we're just, we're sinful, we're broken, we're saved by grace. Jesus died on the cross. He took our place, took our sin on himself, paid for it, made us right with God. And that's where the story ends. And now we're just biding our time until we get to heaven one day. But that's not the story of Scripture. We're taught that God's grace is given to us constantly to mature us, to transform us into a different kind of person. And this is, if you're not a Christian in here this morning, this is the offer, right? Like, it's not, it's not just this, this idea of like, hey, wouldn't it be nice to go somewhere fun and fancy and, and, and joyful someday after you die? No, it's, Are you unsatisfied with your life right now? Are there things about your soul and your character and your relationships that just are broken? That comes from your own sin. And that sin can be paid for and taken away and you can be transformed into a different kind of person. Your whole life can be changed. And I think this is what we see in Joseph. We don't see a young man who is just at his wits end, trying to hide from this woman and he just can't barely stand it. We see someone who has a depth of character say, no, this isn't right, I'm not gonna do this. And please don't hear me this morning heaping on shame if you are someone with a struggle with lust, that's not my intention. It is my intention though, to reframe your understanding. If you have for someone who has believed that like this is just something that's part of being a man, some kind of weakness that you always carry with you until you die, that's just not true. Lust, just like every other sin, is a sin of immaturity that you can give over to Jesus and his power in you will transform you and give you victory over. How does that work? Well, one thing we see in this passage is it works through the circumstances he leads us through. Starting in verse 19, when his master heard the story, his wife told him, these are the things your slave did to me. He was furious and had him thrown into prison where the king's prisoners were confined. So Joseph was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. He granted him favor with the prison warden and the warden put all the prisoners who were in the prison under Joseph's authority. And he was responsible for everything that was done there. And the warden did not bother with anything under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him and the Lord made everything he did successful. Again, God's sovereignty, his his mastery over creation is on full display here in both promoting Joseph in Potiphar's house and letting him get thrown into prison. The Lord is with him in both places. This is why it is unwise to use our circumstances to figure out if God is guiding you. When, when, you're, when your job's going great and when your family's doing awesome and everything's great and you got two weeks of vacation and everything's perfect, I'm in the Lord's will. But when I lost my job and my relationships are terrible and we don't have enough money to pay the bills, God must be you know, punishing me. Like, that's not helpful. That's not the way it works. God is gonna guide us into a variety of circumstances, both positive and negative. He's gonna allow things in your life that you don't understand and can't see as being good. Surely, Joseph wasn't going, all right, prison. It wasn't until afterwards that he recognized, oh, this is part of the plan. Because whatever the circumstances are, they will be good. They will be good for you and good for others. Joseph follows God with his character, his integrity. And God adjusts his circumstances. Pastor, I I, I once knew, used to tell this illustration, young people would come up and and ask like, I've got these opportunities. I could take this job here or that job there. What's the Lord's will? And he would say, are you living a life of walking in the spirit of God with all of you are right now? And they would say, well, No, and then he would say, well, then I don't really think God cares where you work. See, God is gonna do what God is gonna do and what he wants from you is to walk with him and mold your character. Don't worry about the circumstances you find yourself in as much as how God is allowing your character to be molded into the image of Christ. And having this perspective, being expectant, for God shaping my heart has been helpful for me when I find myself in circumstances that I don't like. Whenever I, I try to train myself, to, when I have that feeling of, man, I don't want to be here. I don't like this. This is uncomfortable. I try to, I try to think, man, that, maybe that's a clue that God is doing something. Maybe I should pay attention to what is going on in my heart right now. Maybe I should open my eyes to the people around me. Maybe I should be paying attention instead of just complaining. That I can trust that nothing is happening without his notice and his allowance. That he has a purpose in all these things, whether it's just an annoyance in my schedule or even a tragedy like Joseph goes through continually. These are the things, these circumstances that we don't like, mostly, are the things that shape our character, that actually create in us the ability to say no to lust or to gossip or to pride or whatever it is that comes up in our souls most often that we struggle with. We don't have to resign ourselves to the fact like, well, I'm a sinner, I guess I'll never get any better. You are a sinner, but you've been saved by Jesus. And Jesus isn't content to leave you where you're at. Jesus wants to transform you to be like him. And these circumstances are the engine by which he does this, one of them. And I think we can look at this text and we can see Joseph as a model, but we can also look forward to Jesus as a better model. And that Jesus, by his power, by his spirit in us, is making us into people that are able to stand up in the face of temptation, to refuse it, to be drawn to a life of following God instead of being led by our own sinful desires. We're gonna take communion. And um, one of the things that Jesus says when he initiates the communion meal He holds up the cup and he says, this is the blood of the cup of the new covenant. And his disciples were Jewish men. They would have been um, well-rehearsed in the Old Testament and they would have known that he was talking about Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, he talks about something called the new covenant and he says, I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. And what Jeremiah is saying is there is gonna be a time coming when we won't have just an external relationship with God. God's saying, "Here, here's how I want you to behave, and us going, okay, we'll do our best and try to do it. What Jeremiah is saying is there is a time coming when God will actually live inside of you and empower you to be the kind of person that he's calling you to be. And this is initiated at the communion table. We are invited into this new way of living. And it's a long road. It probably takes all of our lives to get there. But this is the trajectory that we're on. We aren't just miserable sinners saved by God's grace. That's, that is true. But we're also adopted children made new by His grace. And if you're not experiencing that today, if you can't look at your life, maybe, maybe over the past five years, and say, wow, Jesus is really changing me. I would just encourage you to cry out to the Lord this morning. Take a few minutes as we take communion and sing together to offer your life to him, to, to say that you, you, you trust him with your life, to give more of you to him. Confess your sin to him, repent, turn from it. Give yourself over to his rule in your heart and your character. And if you're not a Christian this morning, that's the offer for you as well, that you can um, give your life over to Jesus, that you can believe that he actually loves you, that he's not content to leave you where you are. He wants you to be made brand new. And all of those broken things in your life that you can't seem to get a hold of, he wants to take control of and reshape and transform.